Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. As Larry mentioned, I've been a little under the weather this past week. I think I had the flu Um, since last Sunday. This is the first productive thing I've done all week uh, is to come here this morning. I've been down pretty much the whole week. And so um, whether I'll be able to finish this sermon or not, well, is yet to be seen. Uh, If that doesn't happen, we'll all just go home a little early, I guess. But we'll see what we can do here. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is our passage. I want to begin by asking a question. I wonder how many of you know what is the most recorded song in human history, a song that has been recorded by other artists more than any other song. This song has been, pardon me, Amazing Grace. Well, That really stole my thunder. You're not supposed to know that. I'm supposed to be able to stretch this out for a little while. Now i got to move on. Amazing Grace, absolutely, that is the answer. Amazing Grace has been recorded 6,600 times by 6,600 different artists. Written in 1779 by a guy named John Newton. Um, There was a documentary film made about that song alone, just talking about its influence and um, impact on American culture in particular. Uh, A lot of reasons maybe why Amazing Grace is so popular and so widely recorded. It's a very easy song to sing. Uh, The melody is easy to grasp. The the lyrics are pretty easy to say. It's not very complicated. (coughs) complicated. I think one of the biggest reasons why Amazing Grace is so well-liked and so often recorded is because of the subject matter. Grace. And not just grace, but that adjective that comes before the word grace in this song. we're, We're talking about amazing grace. Now, people might ask, what is it about grace that is so amazing? Now, as Christians, we know the answer to that question, right? We know what's so amazing about grace, right? I mean, we, we wake up every morning rejoicing in how amazing grace is in our lives, right? <laughs> some of us, maybe not so much. For some of us, maybe grace has become a little bit familiar. For some of us, maybe it's been more like boring grace or maybe a little bit more like I've heard that before grace maybe more like you know tell me something new grace but what that song is capturing is a grace that is truly amazing the word amaze means to overwhelm with wonder Christian are you overwhelmed with wonder about the concept of grace and what it is or, or has that kind of faded from view for you? The Reformation provides for us a really good opportunity to review what it is that's so amazing 
about grace. Provides us a context in which we can review how this doctrine of grace alone became so meaningful to Christians, evangelicals, and the Protestant church in particular. Before I go further, I just want to make mention that... um, One of the legacies of the Reformation is the printing of theological books. The printing press was invented in the late 1400s, and it was a a big reason why the Reformation spread like it did. And I just want to remind you that we do have a book table out in our foyer, and I would encourage you all to take a look at that. We're selling books at a discounted rate. We're not making any money off these. But there is a book out there called The Reformation, written by a guy named Stephen Nichols. I recommend this to you. You can see that it's rather thin, won't take you long to read, but this will give you a very solid overview of the Reformation. I have many other recommendations for you for good reading on that topic, but I know there are two copies of that book on our bookshelf. Second thing I want to say is that on uh, October 31st, which is officially Reformation Day, October 29th, next Sunday is officially Reformation Sunday, but that following Tuesday, October 31st, is Reformation Day, and we're going to be showing a movie here at New Life on the, lo- the uh, life of Martin Luther, and we would love for all of you to come, and I, I think we're meeting here in the sanctuary And um, we'll just come and watch the movie and talk a little bit about uh, Luther's life. So we would love to have you, uh, I think we said 7 o'clock, 7 p.m., Tuesday night, October 31st, here in the sanctuary. But um, what we're doing in this sermon series, which started last week, is we're looking, taking one Sunday uh, for five different Sundays to examine Um, each of the battle cries or uh, slogans of the Reformation. And each one of these slogans was a word that had the word alone attached to it. So last week we began by learning about Scripture alone. That was the the foundational principle of the the, uh, Reformation, Scripture alone. And today we're talking about the doctrine of grace alone. Eventually we'll talk about faith alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. But today it's this wonderful doctrine of the amazing grace of God. And there's really no better text to um, read, to introduce that, and to flesh this out for us than Ephesians 2. And so this is our passage to read today, if you can please stand, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. <clears throat> this is the Apostle Paul, and he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, would you please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, in order for us to become kind of reacquainted with how wonderful, how amazing, how great grace really is, we have to get this foundational first principle, that the human condition is worse than you think it is. Human beings, men, women, and children, spiritually speaking, are worse than we think we are. Now, I'm going to take you back to Luther's life and the Reformation. Luther, again, living in the early 1500s um, to kind of help you kind of understand this. Luther was a man, one thing we know for sure, particularly in his younger life, who was highly introspective, had an enormously sensitive conscience about his own sin. He was constantly searching himself over and over again, looking for those ways in which he had fallen short of God's standard in his glory and his commandments. And he would go to his uh, priest and he would sit in that confessional naming sins one after another after another, sometimes staying in the confessional for six hours. And of course, during the time he was in there for six hours, he'd be missing other duties that he would eventually have to come back and confess to his priest that that he had missed. And Luther would just ransack his mind with every sin that he would think of. It would bring to mind something else, like what about that time in chapel when I got distracted? What about that prayer that I offered up? But I know, Luther would think in his own heart, it wasn't really sincere. I didn't mean it like I should. What about that time I was singing, but I wasn't singing with as much joy as I really should have been? And these were the kinds of sins that were constantly (coughs) coming to Luther's mind and that he would be bringing to this priest. And there were occasions when the priest would say, Luther, why don't you go away and come back when you have something worth confessing? He would wear these people out. But on, <clears throat> on top of that, Luther would also make it a habit of trying to punish himself for his sins. He would whip himself. He would go out into the cold winter air and pray and force himself to pray out in the winter, bringing his body to frozen temperatures just as a way of kind of punishing himself. He would deny himself food for days, not necessarily in an effort to fast, but in an effort to punish himself for his sins. And the reason that he was doing this is that he's thinking, this is what pleases God. This is what makes God happy. This is what delights his heart. When I punish myself and make my life hard, 
to get his love and his affection. Well, this is going on and on in Luther's life, and Luther has a guy in his life, he's a discipler, kind of a mentor, and this guy's name is Staupitz, and Staupitz recognizes that here in Luther is a a very sensitive young man, a spiritually-minded person, a very bright, very intelligent. Luther had uh, gone to law school, and Staupitz says, you know, Luther, what would probably be good for you is to go away and study theology. Why don't you go and pursue a doctorate in theology? And so Luther decides to do that. And Luther goes and he begins studying uh, this man named St. Augustine. St. Augustine was um, around in like the, the fourth century. So this would have been several centuries before Luther, and Luther begins studying Augustine, and what he finds in Augustine is an even more severe diagnosis of the human condition than even Luther was aware of. And here's Augustine saying stuff like this. He's saying, you know, look, it's not really just our actions that make us sinners. The problem is who we are by our very nature. Augustine was saying, we don't become sinners once we sin. We sin because by nature we are sinners. That's who we are born into this world. We don't have a choice to do otherwise. We can't not sin any more than a dog could not bark because that's our nature. And Luther's here studying Augustine, and Luther's thinking, I'm worse than I thought I was. And he's just crushed and he's descended even deeper into despair and torment until Luther finally gets to the point where he says, and he writes it down, he says, I don't love God, I hate him. I hate God. I can't keep up with this. I can't achieve these standards. I cannot please this God. Well, the study of Augustine sends Paul even further back to the Bible and he starts reading the Apostle Paul and he comes to a passage like uh, Ephesians 2 and he begins seeing that what Augustine was saying was was absolutely true. There was a, a phrase in the medieval Catholic Church at the time that said, God will not deny grace to those who do their best. And there's a lot of people who think, maybe even today, that that's a biblical phrase. God will not deny grace to those who do their best. Many people think that's in the Bible. It is not. And it wasn't in the Bible then either. But that's the phrase that was tossed around in the church. And Luther looked at that and just thought, that is so naive. That is just so silly that God would grant grace to those who do their best. When people do their best, it isn't close to being good enough. Who do they think, do they really think that their best, as feeble and meager as that is, would please a holy God like the God I know? And so what Luther does is he begins to explore passages like Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians 2, we get this description of the human condition being far worse than we think it is. We learn this. First of all, we were spiritually dead. Past tense. The passage is written in the past tense. Paul's referring to uh, people before they were Christians. But look what he says in verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, now what does he mean? That you were 
you know, dead people, that you weren't physically alive? No, he's talking about people who are physically alive, but spiritually dead. That these are people who are going about their business, raising their families, working their jobs, but they're blind to the glory of God. They're absolutely deaf to the Holy Spirit. Their hearts are absolutely cold to any kind of announcement of the gospel or the love of God or the forgiveness of sins offered in God. It's as if they are corpses when it comes to spiritual things. They just don't respond because they're dead, spiritually dead. You hear that show, Walking Dead? I mean, that's a pretty good depiction. I mean, a zombie is a pretty good depiction. (laughs) I probably should have thought of this before I said it, but... (coughs) A zombie is the walking dead, right? I mean, they're they're walking and they're moving, but there's there's a deadness about them. I'm telling you, there's, there's a truth there about the unbelieving state. People who are alive... but inwardly, spiritually dead. They're like spiritual corpses. And and friends, a a person who is spiritually dead can do nothing for himself or herself when it comes to salvation. A spiritually dead person cannot get himself together and start living better. A spiritually dead person cannot even choose to believe. A spiritually dead person has no free will with which to receive the gospel. He's dead. She's dead. There's nothing there. They're corpses. That's how bad it is. So Paul goes on and he says it's not only that we're dead, but we're defiant We're defiant. Verse 2, in which you once walked, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In these trespasses and sins, you once walked. That that word for walked, or that metaphor for walked, it's, it's meant to indicate something that's very intentional. You know, we're the ones doing the walking. We're going in this direction. And we are following what? Not God the Father, but the course of this world, the ways and the trends and the opinions of the world, following not Jesus, but the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan, following not the Holy Spirit, but the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, this demonic spirit that leads people to disobey God. What we used to be before we were Christians is people who willingly and intentionally and defiantly followed all of these things. There's no one to blame but ourselves. No one was forcing us to do these things. We walked in them gladly and happily. And is this just reserved for some kind of lower class of people? No, look at verse 3. These are things among whom we all once lived. All of us. Everybody's like this. We're defiant. But then the last thing we find is we're also doomed apart from Christ. We're doomed. Look at verse 3 again. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We are proper recipients of the condemnation and punishment and wrath of God. And and notice that phrase, by nature. 
that should bring back to mind what Augustine was saying. We're sinners by nature. We're not born into this world, good people, nice people, neutral people, until we have some bad influences that cause us to do bad things. We're born into this world with a nature that is in hostility against God, making us rightfully the recipients of God's wrath. The human condition is worse than you think it is. You know, in the aftermath of the shooting in Las Vegas, I've been watching a lot of the coverage, people talking about how should we respond to this, 58, 59 people killed, and a, a lot of discussion about what the hotel should have done and what the police should have done and uh, <clears throat> what kind of laws we should have to make sure this doesn't happen again. And all of those things are legitimate questions and good things to talk about. But I was kind of surprised that I never saw one person, I don't think I ever saw one commentator ever stand back and just say, what's wrong with us? What is the problem with the human species? that one of our representatives, a man, would get up in a window and for no apparent reason coldly mow down 58 people. I mean, we don't celebrate wars and battles. I mean, war is, is horrible. But at least in a war, it's like you can see that there's a reason why they're fighting. I'm not justifying war in every case, but generally there's a reason. What was the reason for that, for Las Vegas? Nobody knows. People kill each other for absurd reasons. Why doesn't anybody ask what's the matter with us? This, this is what Paul is trying to describe to us. This is the problem. We're a people dead in trespasses and sins. We're defiant against God. We're children of wrath. And that's what Luther was beginning to grasp. That's what he was getting. And as he began to, to understand that more and more and more, people thought he was crazy. And it just makes me wonder what people would have thought of Luther today with his kind of highly sensitive conscience and introspection. Think of how crazy they would have thought he, he was today. Luther was a whole lot more in touch with reality th than most of us. It was like God in his grace just gave Luther a, a peak. He, he gave him an insight into the true condition of humankind that most of us don't want to face and that we, we just want to find other reasons to explain it and rationalize it away. But God gave that to Luther so that Luther could be used by God to recover the grace of the gospel that had been lost at that time. By way of application, I would just say, you know, if you're a person of sensitive conscience and, and, and you're a little, you know, scrupulous about sin in your life, I'd just say that's a, that's a good thing. That's a precious thing. D don't snuff that out. Parents, don't snuff that out of your children. Spouses, don't snuff that out of your husband or your wife. I mean, yeah, it can get out of hand sometimes. It can go over the top, but it is so much better to be overly sensitive about your sin than to be undersensitive, to have a seared conscience that doesn't even see it anymore. 
and God was gracious to just give Luther that sensitive conscience so that he could use him in the way that he did. So that's the first thing. The human condition is worse than you think it is, but, but here's the great news. The grace of God is so much better than you think it is. Here's the way it was in medieval Catholicism. When I say med- medieval Catholicism, I mean that period of time leading up to the Reformation. Reformation is like early 1500s and throughout that century. Leading up to the Reformation, people <coughs> refer to that period as medieval times, right before the modern times. And you know, maybe we live in postmodern times now, I, I, I don't know. But in medieval Catholicism, Here's something you have to understand, is that everybody thought religiously at that time. Everybody had gods and demons and angels in their minds all the time. Everybody was mindful of the afterlife all the time. You know, today we live in a secular society where we don't talk about God and spiritual things. There was no such thing as a secular society at that time. It was exactly the opposite. Everybody believed in God. I'm not saying everybody was a Christian. I'm just saying that everybody had a view of a God that they'd have to face one day and an afterlife that was coming for them. And <clears throat> with um, high mortality rate and um, disease rampant, I mean, people were always on the cusp of getting sick and dying and being ushered into the next life. And people expected that there were three places that they could go. The first place would be hell. And for most people, that was a very likely possibility. Hell was always right around the corner for everybody, even the baptized, (coughs) devoted Christian person. Because if in that particular system you were to commit a mortal sin, which is different than a venial sin, A more serious sin in Catholicism will be a mortal sin, and if you die with an unconfessed mortal sin, you could wind up in hell. And so you never really knew. There was no assurance whatsoever, depending on how you would die or the timing of your death and the place of your spiritual life at the time. Hell was always around the corner. But you could also go to purgatory. We talked about this a little bit last week in our intro sermon on this sermon series. Purgatory was a place located, believed to be located, just above hell. The fires of hell were believed to warm and heat up purgatory. And purgatory was the place where Christians would go in order to be purified or cleansed before going to heaven. But the thing is, is that almost every Christian expected to go to purgatory. This was the place where the vast majority of believers went. And when they went there, they would go for thousands of years. This would be a place where they would suffer a kind of punishment, just getting them ready to get into heaven. Vast majority of Christians winding up in purgatory. And of course, the third option is that you could go to heaven. Problem being, almost nobody went there. Heaven was just a place for the very best Christians. So a guy named Carlos Iyer, who's written a very good um, history of the Reformation, says this, the entrance requirements for heaven 
called for a degree, I should say for, for a degree of virtuous living unattainable by most men and women. The formula was rigorously simple. Heaven is gained only through the very best behavior. Not many people went there. I mean, the super Christians, the really, really good Christians, the saints, the super holy people, they, 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 they might get there. But if you're just an ordinary Christian and you struggle with sin like everybody else, it's probably purgatory for you for thousands of years. So <clears throat> how do you go about dealing with this? How, how do you achieve good behavior so, you know, that might get you into heaven or reduce your time in purgatory? Well, you could be a monk, and that's what Luther did. And the idea is by being a monk is you can devote yourself full time to just doing as many good things as you can to kind of clock up a lot of merit so that maybe God will get you into heaven. And monks would take a vow, a vow of poverty, a vow of, of celibacy, and a vow of obedience. And to the degree that you fulfill that vow, yeah, maybe you can stack up your good behavior and God will eventually be pleased enough to, to let you in. So that, that was one way. Monkery is kind of a fast track to a possible place in heaven. <clears throat> but another way to kind of reduce at least the amount of suffering in the afterlife was through this thing called indulgences. And indulgences were payments that were made to the church in order to alleviate the suffering of souls in purgatory. And so at about the time of Luther's life, this selling of indulgences became a very big deal. And so there's this guy named Tetzel, T-E-T-Z-E-L, Tetzel. And he is a representative of the church, and he's going from town to town. <clears throat> and and he's, he's preaching, and he's saying to all these people, he's saying, imagine your mom and dad who are wailing away in agony and purgatory right now. Just think of them. Place your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open, and in strolls mum. And people would respond to this. Yeah, of course I want to reduce the suffering of my mom and dad in purgatory. And so they would give money to Tetzel and to the church, except it became apparent that this wasn't just a spiritual endeavor, that actually what this was about is that the Pope was wanting to gain enough money to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. A construction project that took 200 years, actually, to complete. But it was partially funded through these indulgences. And when Luther saw this, this is one of the ways you could kind of reduce this suffering in the afterlife was when Luther saw this that, that he absolutely came unglued <laughs> couldn't handle it anymore and went to that church door and posted those 95 theses on October 31st 1517 to officially get the reformation underway but I'm, I'm showing you all this to just kind of give you the way people in medieval Catholicism generally thought religiously speaking God is primarily a judge, not a God of grace. The afterlife is almost certainly going to be a place of suffering, and heaven is probably not a place for me. That's the way most people thought. Well, what a big difference between that and what the Bible actually says. 
Isn't that good news? <laughs> Man, that is really good news. Verse 4. What the medieval church would say is it's up to you. It's all about what you do. What verse 4 says is no, it's really more about what God has done. But God. You see those, those, those two words? Those sweet two little words there? But God. Martin Lloyd-Jones pre preached a whole sermon on those two words. I think he said these are the two most important words in the Bible. But God. Yeah, human condition is awful. But God. Yeah, we're children of wrath. But God. Yeah, we deserve his condemnation. But God. But God has done something wonderful in his grace. And here's what we find. Here's what grace does. Grace makes us alive. Verse 5. It says, but God, starting in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. He regenerated us by his spirit. He caused us to be born again. And notice here, friends, this is not God making us alive once we decide to choose Christ. Because it says, even when we were dead, in the, at the time when we were dead, spiritually dead, that's when God made us alive. This is a salvation that's initiated by God, not by men, women, and children. This is God coming after us, not us going after God. We were dead. He made us alive. We're born again. Our hearts of stone are turned into hearts of flesh. We're given new natures. We're not those children of wrath we used to be because God has transformed us, made us alive. That's what grace does. Grace also raises us up. Verse 6, by grace you have been saved, and he has raised us up. With him, that is with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is Jesus, the one who died to pay the penalty for our sins. After his death, he was resurrected from the dead. And after his resurrection, he ascended to the Father. And now he is seated in the heavenly places. And when you think about Jesus being seated in the heavenly places, what do you think of him being seated upon? A throne. He's seated on a throne. But who is seated there with him in the heavenly places? We are. So what are we seated on? A throne. We're seated there on Jesus' throne. People who were dead and defiant and doomed sharing a place on the throne of Jesus in the heavenly places. That's what grace does. And finally, grace saves by way of God's gift, not by human works. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. Do you see that? Do you see how different that is from what the, the church was teaching at the time? Very best behavior? What, what, what does this say about 
behavior having anything to do with going to heaven. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's not a result of works. Your works have nothing to do with it. Your works don't contribute to your salvation. Your works don't make you better equipped to go to heaven. Your works don't somehow add a persuasive case to God to let you into heaven. Your works don't help a bit. They don't play into the equation. They don't have anything to do with it. It's not by works. And, and yet this is still a place where there's some difference between the Protestant or Reformed view and, and the Catholic view of grace and works. So here's what it says in the Council of Trent. This was the Catholic response to the Reformation. And the Council of Trent says this, there is nothing to prevent justified people, that's the way it's described, from being considered to have by those very works which have been in God fully satisfied the divine law and to have truly, merit, truly merited eternal life. What Trent is saying here is there's, there's nothing to prevent a, a person who's been justified from being considered to have performed works, their works, their deeds, which can be considered to have satisfied the law of God and to be considered to merit eternal life. Because the Catholic view is this. Yes, salvation is by grace, but it's a grace that enables us to perform a certain number of works. And once we do those works, those works themselves become sufficient to earn our way to heaven. Now They, they would agree salvation is by grace. We share that. But they would say that grace then is what motivates and equips the works for us to do. And those works themselves then merit eternal life. And the reformers responded to that and said, no. It's not grace plus works. It's grace alone. Grace alone is our only hope. For salvation. Now some people respond and say, well, doesn't that mean we can just live any way we want and we don't have to bother living a godly life? No, because verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These are good works that we are doing after salvation, but those works have nothing to do with earning salvation. Still a place of difference that we have with our Catholic friends. So I just can't help but wonder if there are some people here today who might still be striving to earn God's approval. You're still living a frantic life of clocking up merit Maybe you've even made certain vows and promises to yourself or to God and you're trying to keep up with those vows. Maybe you've even found a way to punish yourself to kind of atone for your own sins. You're working as hard as you can. You're doing the best you can. You're trying to be a moral person. You're, you're pretty good. There's a lot of people worse than you, but then there's a lot of people better than you and that makes you uncomfortable. And you're always wondering, have I done enough? 
Have I clocked up enough merit? Am I pleasing to God? Does God love me? Have I done enough for God to love me? What the scripture would say is the human condition is worse than you think it is, so now you haven't done enough. <laughs> but the grace of God is much better than you think it is. And so Christian, yes, God loves you. And the salvation that you have is freely given to you. It has nothing to do with your works. It's not based on your performance. So you can stop trying to show off for God. <laughs> and receive as gift the salvation that he longs to give and is received only by faith. Next week we'll talk about faith alone and, and what that means but all this is going to lead to the coming ages where our God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And at that time, we will know how truly amazing it is. Praise God for salvation by grace. Father, we thank you, Lord, that um, you have freed us from our guilt and given us this wonderful gift of salvation in your son. Thank you for your grace and Lord, use your grace to make us gracious.